My name is Marina Mayer. I am the Editor-in-Chief of Food Logistics and Supply and Demand Chain Executive, and I'm here with my two lovely ladies. If you want to go around the room. Hi, I'm Brielle Jekyll. I'm the Associate Editor. And I am McKenna Morales, and I am the Assistant Editor. And as you've probably noticed, we have a guest today. Uh, welcome, Daniel Stanton. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, everybody. Daniel. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Daniel, as you can tell from his, um, his Zoom link, is now also known as Mr. Supply Chain, um, but he's also the president and co-founder of Secure Marketing, and he's here with us today so we can talk about upskilling, reskilling, and hiring in the supply chain. So welcome, everybody. Just a few housekeeping notes. If you go to foodlogistics.com, you will see our October issue is now online. Very excited, all about risk mitigation. Um, Daniel, you know, you're a multi-year winner of STCE's Pro to Know Award. Um, speaking of pros to know, a reminder to the audience that the nominations for our 2021 Pros to Know Award closes December 4th, and submissions for our Rockstars of the Supply Chain Award close November 20th. So make sure you go to foodlogistics.com and sccexec.com to check those out and get those submissions in. So we're very excited. So Daniel, back to you being a multi-year Pros to Know winner. From your vantage point, how should companies be hiring for key supply chain roles, meaning what should they look for on their resumes and what kind of interview questions should they be asking? Wow. So we just jump right into the meat, right? There's just <laughs> like do. no buffer there at all. So, um, you, you know, I, what, what I love about 2020 is like this is the year of supply chain, right? Because like, um, I, I don't know if you guys followed like what, I, I got a call from Tucker Carlson wanting to be on wanting me on Fox News to talk about supply chain and toilet oh paper, gosh. right? Yeah, I mean it's crazy. Um, they should have so, called Brielle. She wrote that toilet paper. I, right? Go on I together. Know. I know. <laughs> and so you you know I guess what what I'd say is for the last first of all when I think about supply chain, I I think about people, processes, and technologies and how we engineer and manage them to deliver value for customers. Okay, so with that, I'll say for the last decade at least, we have been obsessed with processes and technology, right? It's all been about Lean and Six Sigma and ERP and um, control towers and the cloud. And all of a sudden, what 2020 really brought into focus is how important the people are to the whole thing, right? Like, oh, we really can't operate a supply chain if people can't leave their homes. We don't really sell products if people can't go to the store to buy them, right? I mean, all of this has changed. So I think that's, that is one aspect of COVID that has really driven home the importance of people skills and, and you know, I'll, I'll put around that leadership, empathy, right? All of those things to understand the role that people play in the supply chain. The second thing that I'll put in that category is, you know, with this focus on processes and technology, um, it, it's like we've got this, this vision that supply chains can become completely automated right? That it's all just a machine that we're, we're adding, you know, more and more gears to the machine. And eventually it's all, we're not going to need people there anymore. But, but if we really take a look at how that works, very often what we're doing is we're saying, okay, we're going to look at data about the past. We're going to look at our historical statistics 
And we're going to analyze that with things like artificial intelligence and machine learning. And then we're going to project that into the future. And that becomes our supply chain plan, right? That's what we're doing is we're sort of preparing ourselves for a future that looks like the past. And one of the things that 2020 brought into really sharp focus is the future doesn't always look like the past. And when the, the present and the future are radically different from the past, all of a sudden we can't rely on the statistics and the machine learning and the models that we've trained on. We need to go back to human judgment, right? critical thinking and reasoning and negotiation and relationship management to really adapt our supply chains and set them up for, you know, what, what is the future or what could be the future, right? Because one of the things we're facing now, just like you were talking about in food logistics, is there's so much uncertainty. And it's about how do we make the supply chains resilient? So I think you know, it, 10 years ago, we were really looking for people that knew about Lean and Six Sigma and maybe had some programming and analytics experience. And I still think all of that is super important. But now I think you also need to be making sure that, that you're bringing in more well-rounded people that understand the impact that human beings have and are good at communicating and collaborating and critical thinking and analysis so that... Um, you know, we, we can be adaptable and resilient. How's that for like a 20 minute answer to a 30 second question? I love it. Well, and I think back to like us and how, you know, the three of us haven't been in the same room since, since March and we've been able to make things work. And, and so I think, yeah, I think communication is key and, and having that well-rounded individual by your side. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a question. So, <laughs> so when companies, um, obviously upskilling is a big deal. Like you were saying, the people are, are a huge part of the supply chain process. Um, but a huge part of that is upskilling, you know, people want to learn things and move forward, but how do organizations make sure that, um, it's fair that the opportunity to upscale it or to upscale is available to everyone? Yeah, that's a huge one for you, especially for, you know, one, when budgets are tight, the first things we cut are travel and training, right? right. So all of a sudden, whatever money might have been there disappears. Um, and then the other thing is for global organizations, you know, uh, you just don't have the same access in different parts of the country and different parts of the world to go to universities, to take classes, to go to training centers. Um you know, there, there are several of the professional societies have certifications and they've got different kinds of uh, training models for, for those. So whether you're talking about um, CSCMP or ISM or APICS or SIPS or, or uh, CILT, right? They've all got stuff, um, ISCEA as well. And um, of course, in 2020, one of the things you've seen is a lot of that training becoming more available online, right? Everybody's conferences went online. A lot of the classes went online. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that is still a good and viable option. And I, I've seen a lot of people using the extra time at home <laughs> to focus on, you know, getting that certification that they'd been putting off for a while, whether they're paying for it or whether their employer is paying for it. Um, I'll tell you personally, one of the things that I have been – 
really excited about that's, that's new in the last few years is LinkedIn Learning and some of the other online um, courseware stuff. But um, I've, I've been creating a bunch of supply chain management and project management courses that are up on LinkedIn Learning. And they even have now um, a whole, what they call a learning path. It's almost 20 hours of courses on logistics and purchasing and, um, you know, just a whole bunch of supply chain stuff, leading projects. Some of the courses are mine. There's other stuff like uh, Stephen Brown, who was a professor down at Arizona State for a long time. Um, so, I, I mean, it, it, it's a, a mix of instructors, professors. But what I love about the LinkedIn learning stuff, right, it's only 20 hours, but it's a lot of stuff because they're really um, – LinkedIn learning has, has a, a really good process for condensing the material and making high-quality courses. So it's not like somebody sitting around in their living room recording whatever, right? I mean, it's, it, it, it's top-notch Hollywood video and audio quality stuff, which makes it easier to, to follow and to learn and stay engaged with. But if you have a LinkedIn Learning Premium membership, you get that for free. Anybody who has a LinkedIn Learning membership has access to that training. Um, so if, like for companies, they, they can just pay for their people to get a LinkedIn Learning membership and boom, you get professional development with it. Um, or some companies do a licensing deal like through their um, HR, their learning and development group, and give their employees access to that LinkedIn learning library. So I know there are a lot of companies that are doing exactly that now. Some of the, you know, the big Fortune 500 types that, you know, where, where you have, you know, your own learning portal that you can log on to that's branded for the company. Well, they're, they're dumping the LinkedIn learning stuff on there and saying, okay, you know, we want to give everybody a chance to learn. We want to get a common vocabulary, a common understanding of what these tools and processes are, here's a good baseline. Here's a good starting point to take that and become a supply chain manager learning path on LinkedIn Learning. And you said that it was free if you have LinkedIn Premium? That's right. So the LinkedIn Premium membership, is, which is like, I think $35 a month in the US, something like that, uh, 35 or 40. I don't remember exactly. But yeah, you, you get full access to that library as a part of it along with all of the other stuff that you get, right? Being able to do in-mails and, um, and um, doing searches, you know, if you're looking for jobs or if you're trying to, to network with folks, the, you just get a lot uh, richer set of tools if you pay a little bit of money for that membership. So when it comes to things like diversity in the workplace, how should companies be approaching the subject? And do you think it's important for companies to diversify its new hires? Yeah, I mean, I, that's, a, that's a great question and a really timely one for 2020, right? I mean, that's something that, that I think we're all focused on a lot. I, you know, my take on, on that is companies right now need to be agile and adaptable. Um, and, 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 and you need to think strategically about how do you invest in being more flexible, right? And, and, and part of that is having a group of people that is, um, I'll say, open and inclusive and able to collaborate and, and bringing, bringing in the best talent quickly 
making them part of a team and, and, and um, being able to work together. And, and for me, that's really, um, you know, a key to a lot of the diversity and inclusion stuff. So when you, when you look at companies that don't have a lot of diversity, very often that's an indication that it's kind of a frozen culture, right? Mm-hmm. That they're not open, that they're not accepting, that they're not reaching out and pulling in uh, the, the, the best ideas from the outside. They, it tends to be more of a uh, not invented here sort of um, focus. Um, you know, I don't, I don't focus as much right now on the internal hiring practices. I know that's very much the focus in the HR departments of, you know, how do, how do we tap into diverse sources of talent? Um, in the past, when I did that, some of the things that I did, um, I, working with the professional associations to build uh, networks for recruiting was really, really useful for that because you can find diverse candidates there. Um, a second thing that I, I used to do, um, I'm, I'm a Navy veteran and um, part of my military experience was a realization that is an incredibly diverse community of professionals who have a huge amount of supply chain and logistics experience. So, um, and folks that are in the military and, and coming out really don't have a good handle on how do you find jobs, right? How do you connect and interview? And, you know, it, it isn't even the same language. It's the, the experience may be similar, but the jargon is different. So that was kind of my, my second secret weapon was I would go looking for, for veterans. And, and I could do that by connecting on bases or at hiring events, or of course, LinkedIn is a great place just to do that because more and more veterans are, are taking advantage of that and, and active duty folks who are getting out um, the, the third thing that um, I used to do that I had really good luck with was being, um, being thoughtful about the universities that I went to to recruit at. So, you know, it, it sort of makes sense that if you, um, if you go fishing in ponds that don't have a lot of diversity, then what you catch is not going to have a lot of diversity. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know what the current st- statistics are, but, but I know back in my recruiting days, I was able to, to go to the universities that had um, top supply chain programs, and I knew the professors, and I knew a lot of the students there anyway. But then I was able to analyze the universities based on the, the diversity of the student populations. And, you know, you can't go everywhere. So I would make sure that I was putting some chips on schools where I knew we, we would um, have access to diverse talent. Um, so that, that was also um, really, really successful, useful for me um, in, in making sure that, that I was finding and, and bringing in high quality diverse candidates. So one other thing I got to put in a plug for though, is you know, we talk, we're talking a lot about diversity as an HR issue right? That, that tends to be kind of where the business conversation is. And, but the truth is, as supply chain people, we have a huge potential to impact diversity issues through the supply chain, right? Big companies and government agencies all have programs for um, building relationships with diverse suppliers, helping diverse small businesses 
get up to scale and learn how to do business with them. They keep track of these numbers. A lot of times they have to report these numbers. There are legal requirements that they show that a certain percentage of their business is going to diverse owned companies. So um, just last week, my friend David Burton from the Diverse Manufacturing Supply Chain Alliance, he and I put together a class that we posted on Udemy about implementing supplier development and diversity programs. Because I think as supply chain folks, that, I, I mean, that's where you start putting lots and lots of zeros behind the impact that we can have on equality and, and um, using supply chains to make a real difference for people. That was something that one of our pros to know over the summer when we did that series that you were featured on, Patricia Moser said that she always reaches out to women-owned companies or people of color-owned companies when she meets suppliers because like somebody took a chance on her as a woman when she first started in the industry. So why not take a chance on these different suppliers as well? And you have, and like you mentioned before, is that you have to be empathetic, especially in this year. So why not give like the little guys a chance because they could be everything you wanted and more and probably better too. Absolutely. That, you, you know, so the, the two things there, one, you know, one of the things that you need to have to be able to partner well with diverse suppliers is you've got to have a diverse workforce. So this idea of building diversity on your team and building diversity in your supply chain, very much intertwined, right? That's just, for me, that's part of building a resilient company. Um, and a company that, that's really living up to its social contract, if you will. Um, uh, um, um, where, what was the other thing I was gonna say, McKenna? Right, because you got me going on it, that no, was perfect. Oh, um, so, but the, the other piece is linking supplier diversity with supplier development. Because, you know, there are some companies that, that will put together a supplier diversity program and say, okay, we like this idea. We're going to, you know, dedicate a certain amount of our spend to go to women-owned businesses or minority-owned businesses and then leave it there. But the reality is any company needs to be really thinking about the relationships that it has with its suppliers and the suppliers that they want to have a successful long-term relationship with, they need to invest in developing that relationship. Right? right. And so that's really the, the, the focus of the course that David and I put together is, you know, how do you how do you um, identify diverse businesses? But then how do you really develop those into successful, long term class leading strategic relationships where everybody wins? Right. Because at, a po at this point, when you have just like a certain amount of money set aside for these two different groups, it can look like performance activism to a point, and that's not what people want either. Right. You have to practice what you preach and continue to build those relationships, but I also have something else that I want to ask. But, um, so we talk about diversity a lot when it comes to race, gender, sexuality, and like those are important things to talk about, especially in the supply chain where the industry impacts literally everyone. But something that we don't discuss enough is diversity in education and even grade levels, especially as education and college degrees are becoming more relevant in the supply chain. How can employers look at 
these new employees' transcripts and determine whether they're good or not because a high GPA doesn't necessarily mean that they're talented from someone who was not that good at school, I can attest. <laughs> I think you're very talented. Um, and, and, I, and, and I think that's the point is your GPA may not have reflected your, your talent and your potential. Um, and, and I, you know, for me, I think that's really the answer right there, which is, you know, if, if you could just hire off of a transcript, then you wouldn't need a hiring manager at all, would you? Um, and, and that is, you know, the, the value that a, a good hiring manager and a good leader provides is, you know, being able to figure out, you know, okay, you know, may, maybe a, a transcript is a data point. Maybe a GPA is a data point, but you're hiring a human being. You're hiring a whole person. And, um, you know, the person, like, there are some things that I'm pretty good at. Um, and there's some things that I'm really bad at and there's some things that I'm okay at and I just hate doing. And, um, you know, when you're interviewing for a job, actually part of what you're doing is you're relying on the hiring manager to use some judgment, not just about what's, you know, what's in the best interest of the company, but, but also part of that process is, is this actually a job that I think this person is going to be good at and is going to enjoy and be satisfied with? And it, is it going to help them get to where they're trying to go, right? And so it's like that, you know, the classic question on, on the interviews, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? Well, I mean, if you're doing it right, that's not a BS question. That, that's a legitimate question because as a hiring manager, you should be looking at the person and going, yeah, I think this job could help you get there. Or hmm, if that's really what you want to do, keep moving up the street because you know, that, that this is not going to get you there and we're all going to be disappointed. Um, so I, I think, you know, it, what, one of the things that really is interesting is how um, I think more than ever, the relationship between employees and employers is this constant negotiation about, um, whether each of them is making the other one happy, whether, e whether each of them is satisfying the other's needs. Um, and, and, you know, you, you see it on the employee side where, you know, more and more, it's just like, you know, I'm not having fun. I, I don't like coming to work. I, I would rather spend time with my kids or go do something else and, you know, sorry, bye. And, and if you're an employer, that's, that's a bad position to be in. That means you're vulnerable, right? That person, you know, if you don't keep them happy, they can walk out the door and you're stuck with that work not getting done, right? And that, that's bad. That, there's a cost associated with that. And on the other side, the employer is always looking at it and saying, okay, well, this person is doing these things, but could I get those done better, faster, cheaper, some other way? Or do those things need to be done at all? And as soon as the employer gets to the place that they say, you know, the, the costs outweigh the benefits. We're just pretty ruthless these days about, you know, sending people up the road and saying, you know, thanks for what you did. You know, here's your, here's your gold watch and your pin. Um, we'll see you when we see you. So um, I think the companies, there's an old saying that talent goes where it's treated well. Um, I, I think 
companies that are doing good things and want to attract bright, hardworking people to do them, money's got to be part of the equation, right? It's got to be fair. It's got to be reasonable. But there's got to be more than that, right? You've really got to focus on how do you, how do you be the employer of choice? How do you be the, the place that your people want to be at? Um, and as employees, I, I think, uh, honestly, we're kind of all looking around all the time and saying, okay, I've got this many years to make a difference in the world. I'm spending them here. Is that really the highest and best use? Um, and I, am I going to look back at some point in the future and say, ah, I wish I'd have made that move when I could have. Um, and because of things like LinkedIn, because of, you know, the, uh, working from home now, especially, and, and not having to commute, it's become so easy to just say, okay, I'm going to shut down my computer on Friday, <laughs> and on Monday, I'm going to open it up, and I'm going to be working for somebody else. So, since you said that with the um, LinkedIn learning and the online stuff, um, and e-learning has become so popular with schools. Um, do you think that this is kind of might be the future of supply chain education or that it has a place? Yeah, I think it's part of the future of supply chain education. Um, I don't, I don't think it replaces universities. I certainly don't think it replaces internships and on the job training. Um, you know, the, um, my, my prediction for the, the LinkedIn learning stuff. You know, really, if you think about it, it's, it's a bunch of lectures mm -hmm. that, that are um, produced with relatively high production quality. The alternative, you know, you go to a traditional university and you get a lecture of debatable production quality, right? <laughs> I mean, it's different when you can do 10 takes mm -hmm. to get the script right than if you're walking up on stage and kind of telling some stories. So I think for a lot of universities, and by the way, this is exactly what I'm doing at Bradley, um, the, the new model is, hey, here are the lectures, go watch them before you come to class, right? Anytime during the week, you figure out if you're a night owl, you can watch them at two in the morning after you've finished you know, playing Minecraft for the day or whatever. Um, but then when you come to class, we're going to talk about what it means and you're going to be involved in that and coming to class is going to be an experience that you're engaged in as opposed to a monologue that you're witnessing. Um, that just makes a, a lot of sense to me. And so, you know, what, what do you do in the class then are, are probably um, a lot of discussions that the students are a part of. Um, I think games and simulations, right? And then um, one of the things that I think has a ton of value is interaction with professionals who are working in industry, whether that's alumni coming back five and 10 years later and sharing their experiences or senior executives coming in and talking about, you know, the challenges that they're facing and what they're looking for in talent. So I, I, I think the future is kind of that mix. The other thing, by the way, that I think is an amazing model is what MIT has done with their MicroMasters. I don't know if you guys have followed that, but um, you know, I did, I did my master's in supply chain at MIT. I graduated in 2008, so it's over a decade ago. 
And I think we were the 10th class. It was a pretty new program at the time. Um, today, they are teaching the supply chain courses from that, which is about half of a master's degree, completely online, completely online. Anybody can take the classes for free, period. You can go learn the material, acquire the content. If you want to take the exams and get a certificate, you have to pay like $200 a class. So for $1,200, I think, when, you, when there, there are six modules to this, so for like $1,200, you can get this micro master's degree from MIT. They had something like 30,000 people register for this thing. Wow. It's amazing. And so I think for a traditional university, to not see that and be aware of it and strategically be thinking about, okay, <laughs> what are we doing now to differentiate? How are we providing value? How do we um, raise the standards, raise the quality of what we're doing to make our program something that students should be investing in versus you know, do, you know, leveraging some of these online capabilities? Um, so it's, I mean, when we talk about disruption in supply chain, the supply chain for supply chain education is in the middle of a huge disruption. And we're all trying to figure out what that looks like. But at the end of the day, I think who wins are the companies that are looking for supply chain talent and the professionals who want to be mm -hmm. supply chain uh, experts. It's fascinating. I think it's all fascinating. I appreciate your time that you spent with us. And I, I didn't know half that stuff about LinkedIn learning and I'm on LinkedIn every single day, but um, it's just fascinating to know that, you know, and I've enjoyed watching the industry, you know, provide those opportunities to support individuals so they can be more a part of, of the industry, whether it's, you know, new to them or whether they've been in it for a while and are trying to upskill their way up. So I do appreciate your time, Daniel. Thank you so much for being a part of today's program. Absolutely. Ladies, thank you so much for having me. Take care. Of course. Thank you. Yeah.